0: Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a... I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. But we've also seen people try to use these tools for harm.
1: And that goes for Russia interfering in elections, for fake news, for hate speech.
2: Mark controls everything. And it's not to say Mark's not a nice person, but he's entirely incapable of doing it by himself.
3: Fake news. Online hatred. It's got governments reeling and social media giants scrambling. Today on Context, the world's savviest techies gather in Toronto for the largest conference of its kind. And in Europe, governments gather to stop online hate at an action summit. There is more work to be done here when it comes to stopping the proliferation of online and violent extremism. In the wake of that summit, Prime Minister Trudeau unveiled a new digital charter for Canada.
4: They have to step up in a major way
3: to counter
4: disinformation.
3: Today on Context, combating fake news and who should regulate the internet. The Paris Conference on Hate Speech brought together governments to discuss how social media companies like Google, Twitter, and Facebook should stop hate online. But are they? Facebook took down 77 pages recently for spreading fake news. After being tipped off by a group called Avaz. And Avaz has just released a research report called Far Right Networks of Deception. Alafia Zoyab is the senior global campaigner for Avaz. She joins me from London. Hello, Alafia. First of all, just define for us right out of the gate what fake news is.
5: Uh, thank you for having me. So, fake news is information that is verifiably false. But I want to start by saying something really important, which is that, uh, you know, researchers who work on this stuff, uh, most of us have actually stopped using the word fake news because fake news, let's say, for example, is a story like, uh, the Pope endorses Donald Trump. Nothing of the sort happened. The more dangerous kind of information that our research is unearthing is what what's being called disinformation, which is that elements of it are true, but a lot of it is false. So to give you an example, our research report uncovers a video that went viral in Italy involving a group of people uh, beating up a police car. It was a clip from a film. So the clip is real, but the way it was being circulated online was to suggest that migrants had um, uh, torched this police car, which is false.
3: So you want to reposition uh, that word. Disinformation, I've also heard of inauthentic. And this happens because there's no gatekeepers, right? Anyone can do whatever they want. Alafia, how did Avaz find all these fake Italian? Facebook accounts that were spreading disinformation?
5: So, in January this year, we pulled together a team of researchers, investigative journalists and data analysts, and we decided that, in the run-up to the European elections, we would look at the scale of disinformation on social media that might impact the election. Uh, so it was three months' worth of work, and what we found really shocked us. The key thing to note is what Avaz has discovered is really the tip of the iceberg, and we focused on one platform, Facebook, uh, where all of this information is publicly available, and we focused on six of the 27 European countries. So it's narrow, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. OK, so how uh, but do what we, we,
3: Alafia? how do we distinguish between disinformation and what's just People's opinions.
5: So, uh, one of the things we discovered was that uh, on several of these pages, uh, they, they were run and boosted by fake accounts. So you go online and you think, let's say, an anti-migrant sentiment or an anti-LGBT sentiment is a widely prevalent view in many of the networks that you might be uh, you know, exposed to. But the truth is that many of these networks use fake accounts to boost their presence online. So you wouldn't know that, right, as a user. So that's why we've been hammering away at the social media to platforms to say that they have to take the Owners to correct the record, which is work with qualified fact-checkers to expose people to authentic information. The problem is that uh, Facebook's algorithm, for example, boosts fake content over authentic content. It's very hard as a user to know what is real and what is not, and that's why some of this responsibility has to be on the social media platforms.
3: All right, so bottom line, Uh, monitor yourself and be only um, assured that reliable sources that have fact-checkers are what you repeat and what you believe. Alafia Zoyab from London, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Facebook has revealed they have 30,000 people working on this problem of misinformation. So how does it happen? Well, here's a primer in fake news. Let's jog your memory back to Chewbacca mom. Candice Payne, her life changed forever after a video of her wearing a Star Wars mask and laughing hysterically went viral, reaching 200 million people. (laughs) real news. But now, if you search Chewbacca Mom on Google, this story appears, a satirical hoax, but because it intrigues people, algorithms are set, Google autofills the results, Chewbacca Mom shot, and it almost looks real. Funny until you realize that this same game gets deadly, like in Myanmar. You may recall context reported on the Rohingya genocide there, which was instigated by posts from Myanmar's military they posed as fans of pop stars and national heroes get their numbers up and as they spread hate so authentic news is like this the New York Times investigative journalism documenting how that military Facebook campaign to 18 million internet users incited murder rapes and the largest forced human migration in recent history. Facebook had to take down all the official accounts of senior military leaders in August, and it is a tragic example of why this issue is so important at who is policing the internet. So, let's take a wider look now at the human heart and the internet. The dark corners of the internet are a window into the dark corners of the human heart. Says Andrew Schutten from the Association for Reform Political Action. Andre, what is your view behind the hate speech and the dark corners of the web problem?
6: Well, I think the internet uh, offers an opportunity for people to hide behind a veil of, of secrecy, of an, uh, anonymity, and, and so they're they're willing to expose what's on the inside a little bit more readily than we do in polite uh, civic company. And so when we look into the dark corners of the Internet where we see some of this vile stuff, online hatred and so on, something that we're wrestling with right now as a country, um, I think we're seeing a little bit of window into into what resides in each of our hearts. And I include myself in that as well. What's what's, uh, what's alive there? What does it mean to be human in a, in a fallen culture?
3: Okay, you argue that the greatest protection from online, online hate will happen uh, when we protect a virtuous society, how do we do that?
6: I made an argument before the Standing Committee on, on Justice and Human Rights that's uh, in Parliament that's studying this very question of online hate, saying that, look, you've already done a really good job, Parliament has, in, in protecting through criminal law pro, uh, prohibitions, protecting places of worship from any sort of assault or disturbance. And I think that's a great first start. And we need to recognize the value of those institutions of of churches and uh, and mosques and synagogues, where where there's a uh, an intentional shaping of virtue in the hearts of people. Because where um, where we're pointed to that greater good, where we're uh, instructed and taught and mentored to to exercise self-control to to tamp down that that darkness in each of our hearts, then I think that's how we get uh, to addressing a fundamental issue with online hatred. And those uh, of us in the
3: faith-based broadcasting world, we couldn't say amen loud enough. But Andre, when it comes to policing this kind of online hate speech, um, Mm -hmm. and then it's outside of all the congregations and the, the religious clubs, is it possible that freedom of religion and freedom of expression could be jeopardized?
6: Well, and that, that's an excellent question because that therein lies the tension. And so I think what we need to learn how to do as a culture, and we're losing this ability in a big way, is learn how to disagree well. We don't know how to disagree well. And, and I think maybe the, the social social isolation that comes with social media and the internet age um, is part of that problem. We, we think and talk and communicate in silos. We need to learn how to disagree well. And, and that means that we can't have the kind of study that becomes very politica, uh, politicized where we see um, certain politicians, for example, saying, well, that kind of debate about issues, uh, social issues, about family issues and so on, is just outside the pale, so they include that in hate speech. That's a problem. So so that same parliamentary committee that I was just talking about, um, we, we've seen some politicians say, uh, people like Jordan Peterson, for example, you know, he shouldn't be invited to speak to the committee because he's outside the pale so, of but, polite discourse. But, we, but
3: Andrew Schutten, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm out of time, but thank you, and and you do point, it's a, a great point you make that it's a line to be carefully monitored. Uh, when have we gone too far? All right. Andrew Schutten from Ottawa, thank you.
6: Thanks very much.
3: Well, to help us understand how Canada is standing on guard on Internet security, we have Karina Gould, the Minister of Democratic Institutions and the Member of Parliament for Burlington. Karina, thank you so much for coming into studio. All right, our cyber uh, security chief has warned us that Canada's upcoming elections are actually at threat from this kind of misinformation, fake news. What are we going to do about it?
7: So, absolutely, and thanks so much for having me on the program. This is so important for Canadians to talk about and to learn about. So, as I'm sure you and your viewers are aware, uh, you know, the U.S. presidential election in 2016 um, was, you know, had, interference from Russia. We know that similar things happened in the Brexit referendum uh, in the UK, in the French presidential elections, in the German parliamentary elections, and the list goes on and on and on. Canada, being a NATO member, uh, a member of the Five Eyes intelligence community, a G7 country, and an important player on the world stage, is not immune. That being said, we have a whole range of efforts to protect the Canadian election that's upcoming this fall and to try and assure Canadians that we're taking this issue very seriously and that they can have confidence in both the process and the outcome.
3: And our paper ballots actually help us on this, how? Absolutely, so Canadians can have
7: really good confidence that we still use a paper and pencil to cast our ballots and to tally the results. And so this is part of it where it's actually protected because we're not worried about the results being tampered with in terms of cyber interference. It's more about the information that Canadians are getting in the lead up to the election. Yeah, the imagination
3: getting <laughs> tweaked by mis- by by fake news. And, and so... We've got the new digital charter. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Prime Minister has just rolled out the idea that we're going to do a better job of enforcing um, the lack, you know, ruling out hate. Will there be penalties? So this is
7: what, so the digital charter is basically the first step to say that the government is concerned with this issue and we're going to protect Canadians. And one of the elements is ensuring that, you know, we don't have the spread of hate and racism and violent extremism and terrorism on our platforms and this is you know really important we wouldn't allow these things to happen on the street corner we probably shouldn't allow them to happen on the internet
3: (laughs) And you know, um it's still surprising to Canadians that our internet access is not equal everywhere mm. across Canada. And that's part of the digital charter yeah. as well. Level playing field and equal access, how much is that might that cost? How long might that take?
7: Well, so our objective is for every Canadian to be connected no matter where they are in the country by twenty thirty. Part of the digital charter is making sure that we're protecting Canadians' rights, but mm-hmm. also understanding that connectivity is is a necessity in our modern life.
3: All right, connectivity. Uh, we're looking today at social media responsibility. Do you think social media giants are taking enough responsibility and can Canada do anything about policing them?
7: So in terms of the social media giants, I mean, I think they've taken some steps and they've acknowledged that there are problems on their platforms. Can they do more? Absolutely, and I've been talking with them for a number of months about the expectations that we've laid out in terms of our upcoming elections. Facebook has made some announcements in terms of the activities that they're going to be taking. Google and Twitter are going to be making announcements as well, Um, but you know, we really expect that they kind of follow three principles with regards to transparency, integrity, and authenticity of the activity taking place on their platforms. It's the same expectations that we have for non-social media platforms, so broadcast, print, radio, um, and we expect that they should they should act in the same way.
3: All right, uh, Minister of Democratic Institutions, mm-hmm. Karina Gould, thank you for reminding us of our media responsibility, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. The former Information and Privacy Commissioner for the province of Ontario is a privacy expert at Ryerson University. Anne Kavokian, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start with Canada's new digital charter, Uh, 10 guidelines in it, but I don't read the word privacy. Will it still protect our privacy?
8: I was at the event yesterday. I spoke to Minister Baines. He's very committed to privacy. And the intent of these 10 principles is to reflect that. For example, number three relates to consent and control. Privacy is all about personal control over the uses of your data, including having your positive consent obtained for the uses of that data. So certainly it's implied in this. And also, he talked about privacy by design, which, as I know you know, is something I created a long time ago. It was included in the new law in the European Union, the GDPR. And they have every intent of including it in a law that hopefully will extend from the creation of this digital charter.
3: Okay, so when a large social media company like Facebook um, is receiving a lot of flack about its privacy issues, uh, is that bona fide?
8: Absolutely. I mean, they have been uh, so flippant about privacy. And in the past, they used to say that they did privacy by design. I called them on it because clearly they're not doing privacy by design. So they changed it to, private by design. So it wasn't my privacy by design. It was ridiculous. And now they're saying, uh, obviously, given all the criticism they've received, they're saying, oh, well, they're now going to be doing very strong privacy.
3: Okay, cat's out of the bag, but how can we now make our online privacy more protected? And and just why does it matter so much to me as a, a private citizen?
8: So, first of all, it should matter to you so much if you value your freedom then you value privacy. Privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. You cannot have free and democratic societies without a strong foundation of privacy. We know this. Look at history, so many examples of this. So it's absolutely essential. And also, it privacy breeds creativity and innovation, prosperity. You can't have um, wild and crazy ideas if you have got someone looking over your shoulder. You will go inward. It shrinks your cognitive bandwidth privacy allows you to do blue sky thinking and just get out there and
3: reap the benefits of this of your wild ideas. And the tricky thing is is people who are posting disinformation or fake news, used to be called fake news, now called disinformation, they think, well that's just my private opinion. I just want to start posting this stuff and and this is a this is a tricky line to figure out.
8: It is because what you don't want to do is you don't want to curtail freedom of speech. It's very important that people feel free to exercise their freedom of speech and their ability to post different ideas. There will be a lot of divergence. There's no question, a lot of debate. And so I want to be sure that people can see what is being put out there and then respond to it critically if needed.
3: Privacy expert Anne Kavokian, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, these are exactly the kind of issues the biggest tech conference in North America wrestles with. Context producer Susan Ponting went in search of how techies feel about regulating the Internet, what they're creating, and putting God, not our social profiles, as the center of the digital universe.
0: it's ipray.me just like a typical app one click to pray so this we just click a prayer i went through a tough time i think we all have right and all we have left is prayer and so that's what the that's how the app came about i was just a guy using my own phone notes and couldn't keep track with all my prayers
2: if there's crappy data that goes in there's crappy data that comes out and so I think we have to be very careful when we're using a lot of these technologies to understand the data that goes in, the people that are creating it, and then the impact, the unintended impact. And in the case of Twitter, I think it is an unintended impact. How do you control the ethics of what you gather? We do a lot of thought pieces about AI and bias and control of your own data, and we built this so that you could backtest it, and you could make it unbiased. We got someone independent from our own company to make sure it's happening. So it's not, you don't have to take my word for it, you take the word of the data science professor who checked all of our work. I think they have been said I'm sorry so many times. I kind of am starting to believe they don't mean it. Um, they, I think they are certainly concerned now, but I don't know if they're concerned for the right reason.
4: I don't think anybody should regulate the internet. I think we have, it is successful today because it's been a bit of the wild west and there's nothing wrong with that.
2: I think that regulation has its place. Our thought leadership on that is the regulators should spend some time in an entrepreneurial environment and see what it's like to build a road where there is no road. And yes, we need a lot of regulation, but we also need regulation that makes it possible for business to happen.
4: The big issue we're facing is how does the average user Today manage all of those you know uh it's their their public personas and then they're not so public personas that are buried in you know databases all over google facebook
2: mark controls everything and it's not to say mark's not a nice person but he's entirely incapable of doing it by himself and therefore how does he do it and so the question is is it too big should it be broken up should it be taken apart, should there be strictures in place. I just don't think our government has any capability of monitoring them.
0: The more we're all on social media, as, as The economists did this survey, the more depressed we are. And we, we're becoming the most suicides up, loneliness has doubled in the past 50 years. And our argument, or our belief, our thesis is that, and I think as, as Christian believers, we weren't designed to be the center of the universe. God was, right? And if you think about the way Facebook reinforces our own biases, it's reinforcing our own Godhood. Implicitly, prayer means you're bowed in need and you're you're putting God back in the center of the universe.
3: You're watching Context Beyond the Headlines.
1: This is crazy. Never in the history of the world have the top five companies in the world be tech companies. Think about it with me for a second, right? Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook and Amazon. These are the five most influential, powerful companies in the world. Second crazy fact, all of them were started by a computer programmer, founder or co-founder. This is mind blowing. It's changing the complete way I think about a leader and I think about an influencer. There's this great story in the Bible about a guy named King Saul. He was the tall, big, strong leader. And everyone said, man, That's the king. That's the guy we need to follow. Well, what happened in the story? This guy named David, he's little, short, with a slingshot, you know that guy? He's the leader. God said, he's the man after my own heart. I have a group of friends that pray for Mark Zuckerberg every week by his office. And a year ago, Mark Zuckerberg came out saying, I'm no longer an atheist, man. Prayer works. And it's because we are seeing the change happening in our culture. The influencer is new, and they're leading the way through technology. It's about time we said we got to pray for them. we got to spend time with them. And maybe that's even you. And how are you using that influence that you have? This is a whole culture shift. There's a new influencer. It's not the leader we used to know.
3: That is Faith Tech founder James Kelly there, part of a growing community in Canada that brings their faith to their tech jobs. And such is the case with our next guest, Jason Yoon. He's the co- one of the co-founders of Nulogy, named one of Deloitte's Fast 50 and Fast 500 for business growth in tech. Hi, Jason.
4: Hi, how's it going, Larna?
3: Good. Well, tell us, why might a tech leader need an understanding of God to do their job right?
4: I mean, I think uh, technology is one of those powerful forces, right? That just has the ability to revolutionize and change things, Um, change not only societies, cultures, but people on an individual level. And I think, uh, you know, our role as leaders in technology, you know, it is about the technology, but ultimately it's about the people as well. And so how we shape people uh, in our teams, in our companies on a day-by-day basis is very critical. So if we're taking biblical principles and applying that to how we have one-on-ones with people, how we organize team meetings, how we set direction for the company or make choices, Mm -hmm. um, I think having our roots grounded in the biblical truths of God and also following the example of Jesus, um, those are sort of critical elements to how we can have a better society that's sort of led by tech as well as God.
3: So, how did getting a relationship with God develop for you?
4: Um, that's a long story, um, but I think, in a nutshell, I would say that um, for many years I was agnostic at best, atheist. Uh, my engineering, rational, logical mind sort of really focusing on trying to understand more from an apologetics perspective, um, and that never that never like worked for me. Uh, It wasn't natural. And then, uh, you know, I had a personal crisis last year, and through that, it really opened up my heart to love, forgiveness, the truths of the gospel um, that really changed the way I viewed not only myself, but also my relationship with others and being more other-centered rather than being more self-centered.
3: All right. Well, and uh, might the idea that there are ethics and morals that need to shape our tech usage, um, are we at a bit of a new frontier as we see just how powerful self-publishing and all the different algorithms can be on the on the web?
4: Yeah, I mean, you got to bang on, right? We're in an age where we've seen like we've never seen an ability for such sort of rapid information flow as well as exchange of ideas, right? You know, if it was like the, if it was a carrier pigeon like thousands of years ago, it's now like instant messaging or like interacting with your Alexa, right? So with that comes a lot of opportunity. To you know broaden the reach of the gospel and the message of Jesus, but also there's a flip side you know this overwhelming noise and uh, Misinformation and relativism that distracts and drowns out the truth. So we're definitely at I think the sort of at a critical point where um, we, we need to have a better understanding of how to use all this technology in a In a, in a good way
3: and what is your advice for? Um, online addictions, uh, whether it's, um, uh, over usage or porn or, uh, just how incredibly different it has wired the world gaming. What's your advice for online addiction?
4: Oh man, another big topic. I mean, uh, yeah, personally, I've struggled with, uh, digital addiction. Um, and it's one of those things that when you're in it, you don't know it. And digital addiction can be, is a spectrum, right? Uh, on one end, the, the one that, you know, has a lot of shame and guilt around it, like pornography. That's one that a lot of people don't talk about. So for that end of the spectrum, I would say it takes a lot of courage to start opening the dialogue and admitting some of the challenges you're having. Um, But that's, you know, I I remember Ephesians. uh, Ephesians 5 where it talks about, for once you're uh, a child of darkness, now walk in the light, something like that. And it's really about opening up your heart to who you really are inside. On the other side of the spectrum is, The digital addiction that we think is okay. You know, I was riding the streetcar today and without fail, everyone's heads down on their phone um, playing some game or reading some email or doing something distracting, you know? And, you know, why not in those moments, instead of distracting yourself and pacifying yourself with tech, you know, maybe read the Bible, pray for someone on the streetcar, strike up a conversation. There's lots of different ways we can start changing our relationship with the world.
3: All right, Jason, you're very inspiring. All the best at Lology. thank you.
4: Great, thanks, Lorna.
3: All right. Well, for all of us at Context, it's been a good look into something we're all using all the time. So uh, check out what we've written today about uh, inauthentic news, about taking in accountability to how we're processing and populating online activity. For all of us at Context, thanks for joining us. I'm Lorna Duick.